You're listening to the Rodolfo Rivas Project. My dad has had big conversations with other people around the world and here in Geneva. He loves it and he's all crazy about it. Remember to have fun listening to it, the Rodolfo Rivas Project. Um, the, the first thing we did was to identify a, a theme, what would be the sort of like red thread of the watch. And we went with architecture because we thought that intrinsically um, those kind of like steel sports chic watches are very urban uh, this is what like it made me think you know it's like it's the urban chic it's like something you wear in the cities and and so we were like okay that that there's something behind that and then we were like okay well architecture could, could make sense for for such a watch uh, and then the to, to design that what we did was to try to look for like kind of like design principles or concepts, design concepts, and then like think about how to apply that to a watch format. I think very often times, at least when people try to do things which are inspired by China, they, they go um, to do the pitfall yeah, of just like doing like very um, literary, uh, how do you say that, like very, um, they, they, are, they are very literal, you know? They find some symbols and then they just put it on the watch. And that's why you have so many watches which are supposed to be inspired by China, where you have uh, golden dragons and red dials. And, that's, and, that's and it's okay. kind of very like superficial, uh, very like stereotypical vision of China. I, I don't think this is the way to go. For us, what we try to do is like really, really like dig deeper, go at the core, and, and think about those principles of aestheticism. That was Robin Talendier. And I am Rodolfo Rivas, your host. Thank you for listening. During Geneva Watch Days, I met a couple of individuals in the watch industry, and I was lucky to talk to Robin Talendier, founder and di director at Atelier One, a watch brand focusing on luxury watches made in China. Robin is passionate about Chinese watches, and we talked for hours. We captured some of that conversation in this episode. We talked about his latest model, the aptly named Perception, which has a passionate following and is changing the perception of many around watches made in China. I can't wait for you to listen to this insightful conversation. Subscribe and don't miss a beat. The Rodolfo Rivas Project is available on all major platforms or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Please help by spreading the word recommending us to your friends or enemies. A small act like liking, subscribing, and or reviewing is greatly appreciated. Thank you. Robin, it's really nice to meet you. Thank you for joining me for this interview. Well, conversation, more, more conversation. Well, thank you very much for having me, Rodolfo, and I'm so pleased to be here today with you. It's kind of I, you're here for, for Geneva Watch Days. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So I'm here like for, for four days exactly in Geneva. And um, for us, it's, it's really a great opportunity to sort of catch up with everyone, to meet the journalists, uh, to meet future potential partners, to, to discuss business collaborations. And it's very convenient because I feel that especially like journalists or, or potential collaboration partners, they tend to be like spreaded all over the world. And uh, during those few days, That's everyone is here. So, 
Yeah, so in terms of logistics, it's, it's really, really great. So, so yeah, that's, that's what I'm here for. So it's great to see you. I, I want to talk a lot about your project, your brand Atelier Went, but I also want to talk a bit about you. Like, uh, I know that you got into watches like really, really young. Yeah. Like, what was yeah. the fascination with watches for you? Uh, I, actually, it started like when I was exactly 14, because for my 14. 14th birthday, my parents gave me a quartz Seiko chronograph. And I really loved it and it sort of triggered something in my mind uh, which then uh, made me sort of look for watches online a lot. And you know, uh, when you begin in watches, like very quickly you start to believe that if you want a real watch, you want an automatic watch or a mechanical winding watch. So, I mean, a few months after I wanted one and uh, obviously at 14, I didn't have the, the money to, to buy one, even like an entry-level Tissot or Hamilton. It's way, way, way beyond the, the means I had. And my parents were less than pleased with the idea of giving me 400 euros to, <laughs> to buy a Tissot, which is very fair of them. I mean, uh, I wouldn't give that as well so to they, my they kids. they were not really into watches? Themselves. Oh, no, no, not at all, not at all. Like, uh, I mean, Zero. Uh, zero, zero, zero. Maybe my dad had one watch, but it was like a Seiko or no, nothing too extravagant. But anyway, the, the things that I really wanted that automatic watch and they were not willing to give me one. Uh, so looking online, you know, like I discovered Chinese watches. I was reading those forums, especially Watchusic, where people are discussing them. And I found out that, you know, for maybe like 80 or 90 euros, you could get a perfectly decent automatic or manual winding watch. So I was like, okay, that's what I want. And with my 30 euros of monthly pocket money, I computed that well by summer I could maybe get one and I was looking enough because back in the days with my parents we would go to China quite often and uh, next summer so we went there I bought my first one my second one my third one and so on and so forth I got so, into vintage I got more and, uh, and yeah. uh, these talking there's two things that I, I want to talk about this so China because it seems that you've had the connection with China like The connection with China and the fascination with the culture yeah. started with your parents? It started actually with watches. It's with really watches. like a, a lot of people assume that it's the other way. It's like you're fascinated about China and then you discover Chinese watches. But for me, very much the onset it was watches. It's like I wanted a mechanical watch. I discovered that the only one I could afford was a Chinese mechanical watch. For whatever reasons, my parents wanted to spend holiday in China during this time. So we would go like twice a year. And I bought one, I bought another one, and then I got you know, interested in the culture. So in high school, I took uh, Chinese classes. Uh, so I you did, picture uh, it's, it's, it's a bit bad. <laughs> uh, but I took Chinese classes. I did this exchange when I was in my first year of high school. I went to spend a few weeks in a Chinese family uh, in Zhongshan, which, which is near Guangzhou. Uh, that was really nice. And then I got really, really interested in, in the culture, in the country, so much that when I was in my last year of high school and I was applying for university, my number one goal was that I would be able to do like a full year at Peking University. So that's how actually I selected my uni. And I found that one uni in the UK where they had this partnership with the business school of uh, Peking University and I was like okay that's why I'm going so and that's why I went to study in the UK I did that exchange and but at the beginning really it was like the watches that brought me to China so and also the, like this uh, year that you spent there other than the travels that you had before yeah. but like a full immersion in like Chinese culture like everything yeah yeah I, I mean what I studied at uni was no different from what I was studying in the UK so I was in, in a business school I mean at Warwick Business School <laughs> uh, full disclosure and I was in the business school of Peking University so actually the classes were all the same you know it's like those kind of marketing and, and Porter's five forces uh, so in terms of class it was uh, like in the UK but then like what was really great for me is that uh, I managed to befriend like what was the sort of like head of the Chinese Chamber of 
Horology, uh, which is called like the China Horology Association. And uh, this person became a mentor and took me under his wing. And we basically spent a year touring all the movement factories, uh, visiting the independent watchmakers, the retailers. We even went to the school where they are teaching watch design. Like, it was really, really fascinating. I mean, imagine you're, you're passionate about the field and then you get to spend a year really going into like the sort of like behind the scenes of it. For, for me, it was like, yeah, we are going to Disneyland or any store. <laughs> uh, that, that was so, really, really cool. So like your, like your crash course on watchmaking was this, and yeah. it was from a Chinese perspective, or was it like a global perspective, no. or you really saw watches from the... It, it, it was like, this time it was really a Chinese perspective, because I had the, the interest for Chinese watches, and really that year enabled me to go like behind the scenes and and to go like beyond the, the mere aspect of just looking at whatever is being released. Like I, I could meet the manufacturers, I could meet the watchmakers, I could see how they were doing it. I could also see the passion, I could see the experience, the dedication, and that's what sort of like, sort of initially also started the the idea for Atelier because I could see, you know, like all those people who, who really are great at what they are doing, who are really passionate, who really have skills. And I'm like, when I go back to the UK or when I go back to France, I tell people about that and they're like, ah, I mean, they, they laugh at me, they tell me, no, made in China is, is really bad, it's this bunch of sweatshops, it's kids in sweatshops, and I was like, nah, you've this, this is wrong, you know, you, you've never been, and let me show you, I'm gonna make high-end Chinese watches, and I'll show you where you can be. And that, that was... Uh, I, I imagine that this is something that you come across very often, like having to tell this story, because China is it's a powerhouse in many industries, mm. and in many industries, you don't talk about like uh, some of these preconceptions that people have. But specifically in watches, it seems that it is a really traditional industry where there's like some key players, like Switzerland being one of them. Yeah. Uh, like, what? How has it been like being faced with this like more traditional industry? So I, I think you know when you say like China is a powerhouse of some industries and uh, and not of some others, and watchmaking is traditional. I would still tend to say that China is both a powerhouse and not a powerhouse for watchmaking. If you look at where the watches are made, it's undeniable that it is the number one powerhouse in the world. Uh, from very low end to high end, I mean, most of the watches are made in China. And this is uh, partly enabled by like very permissive like uh, origin uh, laws, like such as Swiss made, French made, uh, made in Germany, and so on and so forth, which enables like the supply chain to, to be located in China. So in that regard, it is a powerhouse. However, in terms of image, that's true. That's where there is like a sort of deficit and, and a gap. And that's where there is some, some work to be done. Um, I mean, frankly, it's, it's not that easy because uh, you know, you're, you're starting with a liability in people's mind. If you were to do like Swiss watches, French watches, German watches, that there's already a, a great image that, that is in, in the mind space. Uh, because maybe those Swiss companies, those German companies, they also did a very great job at, at marketing. If you start with, with China, like uh, with, uh, well, you need to do the work to, to get up there to the level where, where people will be like, mm, okay, you know what, I, I may consider it. Uh, the, the good thing, however, is that I, I really see um, perceptions changing and sort of like a, a general kind of like opening in people's mind uh, to sort of like listen to those like alternative speeches. I'm not saying that now like people come to me and be like, oh, I know Made in China is great, but now they are willing to listen to what I have to say. So they are willing to be convinced. They are like, you know what? I don't know much about Made in China. I have this preconception, but tell me your story and I'll see. Whereas I feel that a few years ago, it was not like that. And the those negative bias, uh, which which are wrong, like were still like very prevalent, and a lot of people were adamantly close 
to the idea of having like a, a luxury Chinese product. There's still a lot of them which are like that. I mean, when we released uh, the perception, we, we got articles in like some medias uh, such as Hodinkee, not to name them, and there was like a huge comment section and a lot of them were those like very, very basic remarks, you know, like, oh, I wouldn't touch a Chinese product like uh, within a feet uh, distance. And I mean, you know, but I guess you still have those, people like those that. Are not the clients or no, those are not the, no, the, the community that you want to no, serve? No, it's, it's not, but it also shows that, you know, we still need to do our work because there are still people who, who think like that. Yeah. Uh, so it, it tells us that, well, we, we need to, to double down and to make even better like Chinese watches so that hopefully there will be a time where they, they can't say such a thing without feeling extremely stupid. Uh, and I mean, if I met them, I would feel extremely stupid, but, uh, but, but yeah, we, we really need to, to keep on, on, on pushing towards the direction to, yeah. And the other thing that, you, that I was going to ask you, so this, was, this is clearly a passion of yours, watches. Yeah. Even like before our conversation, like we were talking about watches and you were really like interested in details and things like that. How was it the transition from being passionate to actually doing it? Like, how did you decide, like, okay, this is something that I'm going to pursue, like, as mm. a career? The thing is that I'm not sure there was really, like, this moment. You know, it all happened very gradually and organically. So how it happened is that, because I, I have a business partner, and this guy named Wilfried, who's also a French guy, but born in Hong Kong, stayed there till his teenage years. We did the same exchange in Peking University. And when we both went back to Warwick, all our friends had graduated because they did the three-year bachelor course, and we were both really bored. And uh, this Wilfried guy, he's really into entrepreneurship. He had tried to do other startups before. It was really what was driving him. So one day he was like, you know what, let's do something together. Um, he also had this very strong interest for Chinese culture. I mean, being born in Hong Kong, having lived there till like his teenage years. Um, but at the beginning, it was like a thought experiment. You know, we were like discussing, we're like, oh, why not doing this? Why not doing that? This is how it could be. And, and for a long time, it just stayed conceptual. And then like he went to do a master's in Beijing, in Tsinghua, and he was like, yeah, why don't we try to look for designers? And we're like, okay, why not? At why this don't point, he was already interested in watches, or this was mainly your passion? For, for me, it was my passion. For him, it was not his passion, but I, I think he, he was just born and he wanted to do a side project. And I think the, the sort of mentality we had back then is, let's just see where it goes. You know, we none of us really believe we would make this like a sort of like full-time project. We are just like, we have a lot of free time, let's explore, let's see. So yeah, he found designers and we had designed and we're like, oh, let's do prototypes. And then basically like when we were about both to graduate from our masters, we had working prototypes and we were like, we were both like in the process of getting jobs and in consulting and in IB and yeah, uh, those. And we were like, you know what, let's, let's delay a bit. Uh, let's launch that on Kickstarter and, and we'll see. I mean, we've done this work, why not sing? And then we're like, oh, damn it, it, it worked well. Like, uh, we're like, let's take a year just to, to see what we can do with this. And even at this stage, you know, we're like, we're gonna work on it a year and then we'll go back to sort of our like uh, predefined careers and it, it will be the sort of nice parenthesis. And th this is actually how it happened. And then when we were in Hong Kong, we're like, oh, let's maybe make it more than a year. And, and also at some point we almost failed because we, we tried to launch the brand in mainland China. And there are issues with that. Uh, the, the first one is that the, the market is, is more difficult. 
um, I feel like people in mainland China, they can be receptive to the idea of like high-end Chinese watches, um, but it takes a, a lot more work and they are much more biased towards like Swiss or German or like French products uh, because maybe LVMH, Kering and Richemont did very, very good marketing job for all those years. So it's, it's harder to sell it to them and then you have a, a cost of marketing which is much, much higher. Uh, I mean, visibility by itself costs more and conversion rates are lower. So you need huge marketing budgets if you want to succeed that. You also need very strong physical presence. I mean, retail is still very important in mainland China. And unlike countries like France, where you have one core city, or the UK, where you also have one core you city, London, in China, you have 15 core cities. So if you mm -hmm. want to do it well, you cannot just be in Beijing and Shanghai. You need Beijing, Shanghai, uh, Chengdu, Chongqing, Shenzhen, uh, Guangzhou. You, you need like a lot of cities. Um, so yeah, at this point, we were like, we kind of screwed up there. Uh, so we both actually went back to regular jobs. I mean, Wilfried went to Singapore, I went to Paris, I started working for a private equity fund. Uh, and at this stage in our mind, the, the project was over. We were like, okay, we tried. Oh, really? You had yeah, like yeah. moved on? Yeah, 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 I mean. Well, like, you still probably had like the, what if, one day? <laughs> yeah, we had it, but we were like, we, you know, we did our time, we did our little thing. Uh, it was exciting. I mean, it was a, a wide, like, yen a half in Hong Kong. Like, I mean, it's, it's, it was great. You know, it was, it was really fun. But we're like, okay, uh, now let's, let's go back with our lives. But then, like... So how did it come back? Yeah, it's, it's funny because we still had some stock. And, you know, so we made, like, no money in mainland China. And it's kind of a, a vicious cycle. You have no money. You don't do marketing. You don't sell. You have less money. You sell less. You sell less. We were basically almost at a standstill. And... But we noticed that we were very, very gradually selling a bit more and a bit more and a bit more by itself. Uh, so maybe one month we sold two watches. And I mean, now it's, it sounds weird because we sold like a bit more than 300 of those in like a few hours. But one month we sold two and then three and then four and then 10 and then 20. And then we had no stocks. And we were like, oh, damn, actually, maybe the... the the concept was not doomed. It's just that we made the wrong decision to try selling in mainland China. Maybe we should like start working on this again. So, so yeah. So gradually, uh, we rethought a bit about what the brand needs to be. We had this sort of like strategic shift. Uh, we started the. I mean, we restarted the design of, of perception. But but that took a lot of time because at the same time we also had jobs and uh, our jobs were the main thing. So that was you know the thing for the evenings and the weekends. So uh, how, how did you? Because I'm really interested yeah. about how you. Uh, can do these two things, like you have your daytime job and how do you balance it with ah, like a side project? It's, it's, it's tough, I basically. The motivation, have, uh, how do you keep motiv motivated? I, I think the, the, the passion is the key, like uh, for, for me, like uh, I'm passionate about Chinese watches and it's, I mean, it will sound so cliche, but it's, it's a bit of a dream, you know, to be able to make a thing that is your passion, especially when you have an old passion that is Chinese watches. And I also believed in the, in the mission a lot, like uh, the, this idea of changing the, the perceptions. We're really passionate about Chinese culture as well, and he, he likes the idea of like, bringing more visibility um, to the culture, to the craftsmen, to the traditions, and again, like, fighting that. So this is what kept us going. Uh, also, in full transparency, we thought, well, you know, this could be a, a good business too. I mean, we, we saw how the sales picked up, and we're like, why don't we, we do more? Uh, what, what were some of the, of the pitfalls that you identified from like the first uh, attempt that you fixed? Yeah, um, I think there were like mostly two. Um, the first one was like how we define the brand. 
and the second one was like the price positioning um, but that is also like heavily linked to how you, you define the brand so when we first created Atelier One we would say that it's both French and Chinese and that it's premium but affordable and I think that it was, was a bit confusion yeah it was a bit clumsy it was a bit confusing people didn't know what they were buying I mean it was a great watch like it was like a porcelain dial for 700 US um, I still love that design. I mean, we could have done so much, so many things much better, but it was a great watch, but people were a bit confused. Like, what is Atelier One? Like, you would ask them, they wouldn't really know what to tell you. There'd be this, like, long and confusing story. Um, so what we decided to do is just, like, yeah, to, to have this sort of strategic shift where we said, okay, so why is Atelier One? What do we want to do? And we went back to our mission. Our mission is to celebrate Chinese culture and craft and change perceptions. And how can we do that? Well, we can do this by making the absolute very best Chinese watches. And that became like sort of the positioning of the brand. We're like, it's true, we're like two French guys. I mean, that being said, my, my partner, even though he's French, he has a Hong Kong passport. So technically he's also Chinese. Uh, and we want to make the very best Chinese watches. And then that led us as well to a shift in the product because uh, to make it best, we needed to improve a lot of things. And here, the, the sort of flagship stuff with perception was the true handmade gear shed dial, where we really try to make the best ever dial we could in China. And I feel in, I mean, again, we can always do better, but I feel it was a good attempt. And um, yeah, so that's, that's really like the sort of like pitfalls in terms of brand and, and price positioning that, that we, we identified. Um, the mistake we did was to try to sell in mainland China. That was too early. Uh, we didn't have the cash to do it. Um, and now, for example, this, this is like, usually you're, you're not a prophet in your own land. So, yeah. <laughs> so now, after the success uh, yeah. you've had, like, is it easier like, to, send it, to sell it to in China? Uh, so in China, we sell in Hong Kong. Hong Kong is like our second largest market. In mainland China, however, that's, that's a different story. Uh, but we changed the strategy. Beforehand, we had like a sort of like boiling the ocean like uh, vision. We're like, we'll do it the traditional way. We'll do marketing in like magazines, in uh, online forums, blogs. We'll work with influencers. We'll work with retailers. You know, the kind of like very top-down funnel. Um, what we decided to do on the other hand now is like we identified what would be some kind of like key hardcore customers in mainland China. We identified like some of those people, we drew this profile and then we asked those people to basically sort of like network for us. Um, go into their like collector circles, collector clubs and, and talk about Atelier and show the prototypes. And this worked much, much better because at the onset we were talking uh, initially to like um, a kind of like segment which is very receptive to, to the brand and to what we do to our watches. Um, the downside of that of course is that you have a very quick limit on volume but that being said I mean we are a small brand so right now it works. At some point I'd like again to maybe try to go a bit more mainstream in China but I think for that we'd either need like a very established partner or a lot of cash to, to burn for, for marketing, for influencers to, to redo it well. Uh, but it's not going to happen now. I'm kind of happy with this grassroots strategy of like ambassador customers. Uh, and yeah, for, for now it's, it's, uh, it's good enough. And now, now after 
the success that you had, like you are doing this full time. Like this yeah, yeah. So, so, so I left my job in the private equity fund um, because there was just not enough time like to do the two of them. It, it, it's okay, you know, if you want to take it very slow and uh, slowly develop a new model and, and have some sort of like strategic thinking about the brand. But, um, but you know, like, yeah, we, it, it sold not badly and we were like, okay, that's really the sign that there could be some traction behind that and that we, we could really make it that maybe people are, are, are ready for the product and we could really make something that gets closer and closer to, to the vision. So for that, we, we needed someone to, to be full-time. And I mean, for me, I mean, I'm so passionate about Chinese watches <laughs> that I was like, yeah, okay, I'll do it. My, my partner, he's not like full-time on it. Like he, he created another company. It's a bit like a sort of like Shopify for Southeast Asia. Um, but, but yeah, so I'm the one doing it full-time and I guess he does like 20% of the work. It's very 80-20, um, yeah. And, um I want to talk a bit about the the design process for a piece. So you said that you identified like a, a better approach and then this also led to a product. Uh, when you first were thinking of the product that you wanted to, to do, like what were some of the, like you, you wanted to definitely play within the sandbox of sports steel yeah. integrated bracelets. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How, How do you approach this? And the reason why I ask this is because there's many, there's many products like this that seem like they they take like a design, a general gentle design, and then they make some adjustments. Mm. This doesn't seem like it was your approach. No. Like your approach seems like you identified the sandbox, but then you came with yeah. your design. Yeah, I mean, that, 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 that goes to our designers, um, but Initially, like why we went for the steel sport chic kind of like genre, which is also very much like 70s, like um, that was like a, a business consideration. We looked at what was doing well, what was rising, and, and we are like, okay, this is a, a very good segment to be in at the moment. Uh, but, but then, yeah, then it was like a, a, pure, a pure design exercise, and we had to think about like what could be our take on the genre. Uh, but also like how we could kind of like translate the brand, translate the inspirations into such a product. And for this one, um, the, the first thing we did was to identify a, a theme, what would be the sort of like red thread of the watch. And we went with architecture because we thought that intrinsically, um, those kind of like steel sports chic watches are very urban. Uh, this is what like it made me think, you know, it's like it's the urban chic, it's like something you wear in the cities. And, and so we were like, okay, that, that, there's something behind that. And then we were like, okay, well, architecture could, could make sense for, for such a watch. Uh, and then the, to, to design that, what we did was to try to look for like, kind of like design principles or concepts, design concepts, and then like, think about how to apply that to a watch format. I think very often times, at least when people try to do things which are inspired by China, they, they go um, to do the pitfall, yeah, of just like doing like very, um, liter how do you say that, like very, um, they, they, are, they are very literal, you know? They find some symbols and then they just put it on the watch. And that's why you have so many 
watches which are supposed to be inspired by China, where you have uh, golden dragons and red dials and, that's, and, that's and okay. this kind of very yeah. like superficial, uh, very like stereotypical vision of China. I, I don't think this is the way to go. For us, what we try to do is like really, really like dig deeper, go at the core, and, and think about those principles of aestheticisms, and then like go back upwards and apply them to the watch format. But, um, but this is what you're, what you're telling me, it, it is true because I can see it from the design. And uh, I think that your approach also has a lot to do with storytelling. So, <coughs> because there's a lot of, there's a big story with this watch, but everything is there for a reason. Yeah, that, that's the thing, there's, there's nothing random and there was like, a principle be behind everything. So to, to me, like the, the best the best embodiment of this is really the the dial because we really try to reconstruct the dial in the same way that they would build like temples and like imperial buildings thousands of years ago. And you have this ancient principle which is called Sun Mao, uh, which is uh, basically a sort of like stacking of elements or imbricking of elements into each another uh, that they used to, to make like buildings for, for centuries. And we, we did the same for, for the dials. We have four levels of height and you have a base plate on which we put like two discs which are guilloched and then on those discs you have like cutouts and in the cutouts the indexes come nesting into them and then finally in the indexes themselves you have cutouts again and in these cutouts you have this like elevated chapter ring which sort of like locks in um, so this way we like the idea because we yeah we really like spotted the principle and then we applied them to, to the dial um, and, and we'd like as time goes by to go like more and more towards that direction of really like finding the, the core thinkings and, 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 and bring that to, to the watch, uh, be less and less literal. Our first watch, the, the Porcelain Odyssey, we were not literal in some aspects and we are literal in some aspects. For instance, like in the subdial, like uh, it was like a small second subdial, uh, we put like some Chinese characters which were like taken um, from like an old uh, time-telling system. And, and this was purely visual and, and to us it was actually quite literal. So there was a concept and we kind of like pasted it on the dial. But what we really want to do is find the, 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 the principles and rethink them to the watch format. And that, that's the, the hard bit. Um, but yeah, gradually we are trying to, to be more and more there. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, what you're telling me is that your approach has been like, uh, you've improved and you've seen what doesn't work. And mm. Mm. it happened with like your first incursion when you tried to do in China, it happened with the porcelain uh, series and now this one. What are some of the other things that perhaps you've seen like, okay, this is something that we need to improve like for the next, for the next watch or for? I think, um, but, but, but then it's, it's also linked to the, to the positioning. It's like when we decided we're gonna be doing the very best Chinese watches, we thought now we need to stop having sort of like compromises. I mean, we, we still have some of them, you know, it's like we could have made a 20K watch, but I'm not sure it would have been a, a great idea. But with the Porcelain Odyssey, we were heavily like budget constrained because, but also it, it was fair at the time because, you know, we were like, okay, we're gonna release a 700 time only uh, Chinese watch. And if you look at your average seagull, it's around like a 1,500 RMB, which is like 200 something US. So we were really worried, we are like, are people going to buy this? And we didn't know, there was no benchmark, no sort of like past examples to look at. So, I mean, it was fair for us to think this way, but here we really tried to be less budget constrained and we're like, 
let's make the best dial whatever it costs and this dial cost a hell of a lot to make but we then we were happy with with that and, and same for the case the bracelet like instead of using 316L steel we use 904 so that you have this sort of like extra shine when you really polish the chamfers which which is really great um, so yeah this is also something which changed like how we approach the 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 the, 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 the product design and like choices like we try to look less at the budget, it's more like we really want to have a great watch, we really want to have a great story, we want to have the sort of best of everything, let's make it. And then we believe that if we really try to make the best everywhere, we'll be able to have a compelling product, whatever the price point is, because you can have great stories at 1,000, 2,000, 10,000, 20,000, 50,000. It, it's really about like what, what you bring, but you can make great watches at all those price levels. And yeah, so we budget comes second kind of it's not like we have a price positioning and we make a product for the price but it's more like we make a product and then we work on like how to yeah sell a watch at that price or frame it at that price and um, I, you were also talking that when you first got into watches you were really involved in the forums and everything yeah. that's an important part of the community and even now i think that you are really like hands-on like personally involved with you're forming a community of, I don't know, like advocates of Atelier When, yeah. and you engage with them uh, yeah. every day. I'm, I'm part of that WhatsApp group. How does that fit in the larger, like... Uh, that, yeah, no, that's a fair question. But actually, to, to tell you why we did that at the beginning, like the idea came from um, uh, Chinese uh, marketing uh, uh, practices. Um, ah, because yeah, it's like in China, true. what they do a lot is that like on Douyin, uh, which is like TikTok, um, like you have live streamers and what they really try to do is to bring you to private WeChat groups where then you have a sort of like close-knitted community and you get access to behind the scenes. And, and we saw that and we saw that customers there loved it because, I mean, they would really get this sort of like privileged access. They would talk directly with the brand or the founders. And I mean, for the brand, it was great as well because it's, you know, it's, it's more natural, it's more instinctive, um, and you really get to, to create a community with your customers who then like really advocate for you. Um, so we thought we would be doing the same here. So that's why we created like a first WhatsApp group as a trial, where we would invite like people from our newsletters, from Instagram to, to come. And the deal would be that, yeah, we give them like yeah, behind the scenes content, uh, content which is sort of like less polished because, you know, when we release a newsletter, I mean, there's a photographer in Singapore who takes pictures, they get edited, they get vetted. I mean, it's, it's very like carefully sought out. There is much more like natural. I mean, it's pictures I take with, with my phone of, of, of the watches. It's, it's a bit crappy shots. It's a shot we receive from the suppliers. Like it's not filtered. It's really like raw sort of. But I think um, that, that that aspect of being raw and having like direct communication with one yeah. of the founders, with the founders, like I think that that's appreciated. Yeah, and it seems people really like it. Like they're like, it's, it's a great experience. So we are very happy because it's a great experience for them. But for us as well, it's, it's a much better way of, of like communicating. Uh, it's, it's more natural, it's, it's more pleasant, uh, there's less barriers sort of. So no, we really like that. And this is something that we want to, to, to boost and scale. I mean, of course, we don't want too many people on those WhatsApp groups, but the idea is that we feel that having marketing where you talk directly to your community and, and building that community is really the, the way to go. Um, so, so we'll be trying to like, 
be more active or have more of our activities on WhatsApp. And actually, we've recently like decided to start working with a company in Berlin called Charles. It's a kind of like a CRM software, but for WhatsApp. And you can have a lot of automation bots. And I mean, the same kind of chatbots as you have currently on our website, you can have them on WhatsApp. And the big idea is that like, we will try to generate traffic to WhatsApp. And then based on that, we could identify people who are really interested. And then we can have like one-to-one -one conversation with them. Or we can uh, offer them to, to join the groups if they, they wish to. Um, but we really feel that conversations and, and community buildings and having this sort of like two-way avenue is, is the, the way to go. So we'll be building more, more of that. And I think that also like, for example, in this, uh, the community like even can take like a more active role. I remember like specifically something that comes to mind is like when you were even talking about like the bracelet and how you were uh, making some adjustment to the tolerances mm. and, and that. And like, it seems that input like direct input from the community is taken into account. So it's yeah. not just like a one way. No, no, it's, it's way two way. The, the, the goal is, is, is not just to have a sort of like private marketing pool, but it's more like really to have a, a community of people who are more than customers, but who are part of the brand. And, and, and for us, it's great because, you know, often we, we need feedback, uh, we need ideas. And I mean, and when you need feedback, it means that you're unsure about something that maybe something is not perfect. So you can't like, publicly talk about this like you, you need maybe a kind of like more safe environment and, and the community is, is great for that and as time goes by we we want to integrate them more in the choices we make like designs or or finish or, or all these things so for instance right now we're working on like new colors for 2023 of, of perception I'm not sure yet when we will release them, but we have shortlisted like 12 of them. And uh, then we'd like to, I mean, we'll narrow down the list, but then we want to ask people for, for their opinion, like uh, which one they, they like most and, and why, and so that we also get a sort of final understanding of what could, could resonate well with our audience. Um, like you mentioned also, you're French and your partner, business partner is also French. Mm. There seems to be like a, I don't know how to put it, but maybe like a rebirth of the French uh, watch industry. Yeah. But this is like, this is not something that you are interested in or is it? Because like you seem to be more interested in Chinese. Yeah, it's, I don't know, both my, my partner and my interest are really into like China. And I mean, for, for me, it's, it's because like when I was young, I collected Chinese watches, then I got more involved in the industry. I got to, to, to really see the behind the scenes. and. And it's, it's both my passion, but I also felt that, you know, there, there's, a, there's a mission to be accomplished. Like, because I, I could really see the, the talent, the, the strengths, the passion, and I could see, like, how the, the reputation can be, like, um, not what it should be here. So, yeah, I felt like th th there's a mission to, to, to be done. Like, there's something to be achieved. And it's the same for my partner. I mean, he, he, he was born there. He lived there most of his life. Uh, he went back there to study. Um, he's also very attached to that. He's very committed and he, he, he wants those like preconceptions to, 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 to fade away. So, so yeah, and, and he also, I mean, has this strong interest for the culture itself. He's passionate about it. Um, so no, we really are focused on, on China. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm very glad like about what's happening in France. This is great that you see more brands that you see like more initiatives to make movements in the country uh, that you have this sort of grassroots scene it's 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 really great 
but um, I don't know personally I, I don't find any sort of like attraction um, to, to this uh, I mean I appreciate the watches I have a Baltic myself uh, but um, I don't feel the, the need or the it's call to be part of that they're already doing that <laughs> others <laughs> and um, earlier today we were talking about um, like a, a bit of your approach I mean you're you're a small brand mm. and as, uh, because as such you you have more flexibility and the opportunity to explore different things yeah like I was interested in what you said about like a bit more of like a rigid approach for example like to here to the Geneva watch days. Mm, yeah, Is that yeah. something that you can talk about? Yeah, of course. It's a, it's a very crafty approach <laughs> uh, because, uh, I mean, I'm sure you may be aware that uh, getting a booth at the Geneva watch days is kind of pricey, uh, especially in Switzerland. Uh, so no, so when we're here, like we, we don't really have a booth, but for us, it's more like, I'm not going to say we're free riders because that, that will sound a bit pejorative, but in, in a sense, there's a bit of that. It's like everyone is here. Uh, all the journalists, all the potential partners, I mean, uh, most of the people are here. So you can just come here and sit in the uh, Beau Rivage or any of the other hotels around and have coffees with the same journalists or people that come to, to see the brands. It's, it's a very cost-effective way of, uh, of doing it. Um, so, so yeah, that's what I've been doing over the, the past few days, just sitting in the hotel lobby and, and doing my coffee meetings. Um, yeah. But maybe one day, like who knows, maybe one day we'll, we'll get to booth uh, yeah, a long, sure. long, long time. <laughs> <laughs> and, and regarding like um, the approach to general in, watch, in watches, in the watch industry, the watch industry is an industry that's changing a lot. Mm. And there's also, I, I get the sense that there's so many products like coming every, even now. And in five weeks, we'll forget about those and then we'll be thinking about uh, new products. How do you manage to cause an impression with all this like so rapidly changing and moving from one to another? Yeah, I think you have like different like uh, factors for that. I, I think a lot of it, I, I mean, to me, it's like there's like sort of like two, 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 two levels at play. The, the first one is your product itself. The second one is your marketing. Uh, I feel like indeed you have a lot of products coming out, but I don't know, oftentimes the, the stories are not very strong or not, they are not that differentiated or there's not something that will really like sort of like mark you, you know, like you, the way they are built, um, you won't really remember them because I mean, how many diver watches are there or, or simple dressy watches or, but the ones with good stories, you, you tend to, to remember them. I don't know if you followed, but like the, the Bulgari, like uh, they released like some new Octo with like uh, some, again, Japanese architects. And I feel those ones people like, for instance, I mean, at least the Tada Rondo, like people remember them because there was really something about it. It was like, it was really cool. It was unique and there has a great, great story and a great design. Um, but, but yes, so for us, like a first way is to try to make, I mean, what I hope is like some great stories, uh, great design, great value prop, like have a, a watch that is a kind of like holistic uh, whole and um, that, that is like not bland and that, that has its, its true like personality and, and DNA and that is not something that you have seen anywhere else that is really unique. I mean, I'm not going to say weird, but that is like truly, truly unique. That, that's the one thing. Then I think it's also a marketing strategy is how you manage to, to have constant visibility. 
honestly, that's something we're working on because right now most of the press coverage you get is like very much linked to to the to the release cycle. Like you release something, get press coverage, but you don't release, you, you don't get mentioned. So we're we're working with the with the magazines, with the publishers to also be a bit more like featured uh, even when we don't have uh, products to, to release but uh, also like on the topic of marketing I feel like this like WhatsApp strategy that helps a lot because you're in constant contact with your community with those people and those people advocate for you and my hope is that when they receive their watches you know then also being in constant contact will maybe push them to, to show it to, to post it around to uh, be proud of it and, and yeah and, and share it and um, yeah, so marketing and, uh, and how your product is And about like, you mentioned already a couple of brands, like what are some of the brands or products that you are looking at that you find interesting? Um, Ming for sure, like uh, even if like people complain about the ordering, like cycle and all these things, but I still really believe that they were extremely fresh in their design, in their approach and, and they brought something that had never been done before that was unlike anything else. So to me, it's like it was it. And I mean, it's still a very, very great brand making great watches. And, and I managed to bring that uniqueness, uh, yeah. which is extremely hard to do because anyone can do a sub homage like there's tens of thousands of them. But to bring something that has never been done before, I mean, huge kudos to them. I think Corono is great because they very early on took a spot in the sort of like accessible, independent Japanese spheres where there's not many players besides maybe Minase. Uh, so that's that's a great one. I look at Baltic as well, but it's, I guess it's more for like, I don't know. I think they are extremely honest with their products. Uh, my reading is that they could sell them for much more money and they would still sell them. Uh, but Etienne, the, the founder, is a very like transparent and honest and fair guy and he's like, he wants to make them accessible when he could make more money, but he still prefers to make them accessible. Uh, he doesn't play the hype game. So yeah, I look at them for how they, they make their products. I like them. Um, then there's countless of other like brands, but mo mostly like I like them. I like Rihanna for the collabs. I think they are very creative. Um, I like that. Uh, who else do I look at? Uh, that's, that's mostly. mostly. Uh, and. Also, lastly, uh, it has been a really insightful conversation. What are some of the future plans for Atelier Wear? Yeah, we, we do have a lot. Uh, I mean, there are some I can say, some I cannot say. <laughs> yes. uh, but I'm going to talk about the chrono, because I think I talked about the chrono before with Revolution. Um, so yes, yeah, so we're making a, a chronograph version of Perception. And um, it's great. Uh, but, I mean, first of all, because it's going to be a great design. and. We've been working on that for the past three, four months with our designers, so we really thought a lot about the design, so it's, it's a great design. But also what I'm very happy about this is that it's a step forward towards our dream of making those very best Chinese watches. You know, with the regular perception, I think we achieved a lot in terms of the dial. We brought true handcraft, uh, true handmade and that that was quite something because you don't find those Kyoshi dials anywhere but with this chronograph we'll have a very special movement that is going to be like fully handmade with Englage in the angles, true cut de Genève, crude chaton and all the things which you usually find in very very expensive chronographs so 
it's like we'll also be able to have this huge step up with the movement. So, you know, it's going to be like, okay, the dial, we have the huge step up. The movement, we have the huge step up. And it's, yeah, kind of like a, another, like, uh, milestone in this path towards making the very best Chinese watches. So, yeah, it's going to be really cool. Yeah, I mean, uh, I am looking forward to that. I am also looking forward to the new release window. Yes. Yes, 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 in, in November. In November. Uh, in November, yeah. I mean, few of them, not that many. I uh, hope to make a bit more, but of course, uh, the big bottleneck is the, the Guilloche Mastercraft by Mr. Chang, uh, because there's only so many dials uh, you can make. Uh, by the way, also talking about uh, Master Chen, yeah. like, it seems that a lot of your experience has also been about funding the right individuals. Yeah. And uh, finding Master Chen was also like a bit of a, of a journey. Yeah, it was a bit of a journey because uh, at the beginning we didn't think we would do like real guilloche. We thought it would be way too expensive. And so we wanted to settle for something a bit in the middle, which was like CNC guilloche. So it's not, it's not handmade, like there's not a guy like turning his rose engine, but at the same time, it's sort of the same process because like there's like a CNC machine which is engraving the pattern. So it's not like a stem dial where there's no engraving at all. It's just like you stem the thing. Um, so we were looking for a supplier able to do that in China, but it was very hard. Um, I guess there are not that many, uh, and it's not a very common thing to do CNC gachet. Maybe in Switzerland there are some. I know Ofion uh, did some like CNC gachet. It was, it was great. I know some guys in Australia also doing some. Um, but yeah, so we were not finding, and one day that there's a guy in Beijing whose name I, I won't say, um, who I don't know knows a lot of craftsmen. So out of despair, we asked him like, uh, "Do you know anyone doing CNC gachet?" And I don't know why this guy doesn't like us. Uh, <laughs> I, I really don't know why. And he laughed at us. He's like, "Oh, you know, like CNC gachet is so bad and low. Uh, there's only real gachet that matters." And we're like, "Okay." And he said, "And there's one guy in China who does it, but you know what? He will never want to work with you. Like you're." Basically, you're too insignificant and what you're doing is completely useless, so he will not want to work with you. But we're like, okay, but can you give us his name and his WeChat contact? And it's like, yeah, okay, but there's no, don't try, like it's not even worth it. So we reached out to then Master Cheng and Master Cheng was like, yes, let's work together. How did and you convince uh, him? Was it an easy... Oh, we told him what we want to do. We told him that really our, our goal is, is to, to showcase people like him. Because the issue with Master Cheng is that, I mean, he has been making dial not for too long, but for some time. And he supplies like mostly like Western brands, but he's never acknowledged, you know, like uh, it's just like, yeah, he's always in the shadow. Nobody knows about him. And I guess when you're a craftsman, it's, it's a bit sad, isn't it? When like you're making so much effort to turn out a dial and, and then like no one knows you've made it. You don't get the recognition or I don't know. It's like as if an artist was like, just like always behind the shadows. It's, it's a bit sad. So we, we told him like what this watch is about. It's about like showcasing craftsmen. And in this case, it's him and it's uh, telling his story. And it's about like telling the world that you have at least one guy uh, doing like a rose engine guilloche in China. So he liked it. Uh, he liked it, and he yeah he, he he agreed with the brand vision, and we and, and he like yeah you featured him in, in material of, yeah. of the brand and everything. So I yeah, we, we even like sent like a camera crew there. We shot this small video 
Now we're editing a longer version of that to really like show what it is like in his atelier, how he works, how he does his styles. And how involved is he? Is he just like focusing on dials 100%? Yeah, that's the only thing he does. It's okay. just dials. Uh, you know, even like it's funny because uh, on the dials, so you have like a sort of like rectangle canvas where we print the, the, the yes. brand name. Even like at the beginning, we asked him, we're like, can you, you know, just engrave this rectangle and you don't guilloche there, but you engrave the rectangle. And he was like, no, I don't do that. I only do the guilloche. So actually it's like we have a first supplier that provides the raw dial made of copper. Then it gets sent to a second supplier that is going to do with the CNC machine just the rectangle for the bread. And then it gets uh, sent to Mr. Cheng who does like the guilloche. Then it gets sent to another guy who like does like the color plating, which is also a huge hassle and who does like the printing and but really Cheng only 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 does the guilloche nothing else <laughs> that's a great story well robin it has been a pleasure talking to you thank you for telling me a bit of behind the scenes of atelier one and i look forward to seeing the chronograph and other projects that you're working on yeah well thanks a lot for it was really a big pleasure and uh yeah thanks thanks so much this was the one alpha Rivas project. I hope you loved it. Can you dig it? <laughs>